This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, January 27th, 2022 on KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. On today's show... Arkansas had a teacher shortage before the pandemic. But it is continuing. We have large amounts of teachers retiring um, over the next two to three years in the state. Trying to get more teachers in front of students in Arkansas classrooms later on this hour. And in about four minutes, Northwest Arkansas Community Clinic steps up to help with another shortage, truck drivers. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith tells us more just ahead. The number of Arkansas patients with COVID-19 is up again. The Arkansas Department of Health reports a net increase of 34 virus patients in the last 24 hours, pushing the statewide total to more than 1,800 COVID-19 patients. More than 6,500 new cases were in the reports and an additional 18 deaths from the disease. Active cases have dropped to below 85,000 after a reduction of more than 5,300 in the last 24 hours. Hospitals in northwest Arkansas have slightly fewer virus patients today after reaching a pandemic high on Tuesday. A 24-hour reduction of 12 patients means there are 173 patients with the virus in Benton and Washington County hospitals this afternoon. The average age of a hospitalized patient in northwest Arkansas is 46. The Northwest Arkansas Council is hosting a COVID-19 vaccine clinic tomorrow from 1 until 4 at the Arkansas Blue Cross Blue Shield Northwest Arkansas headquarters in Springdale. The clinic will offer first, second, and booster shots to those age 5 and older. The council will also host a vaccine clinic tomorrow from 8 until 4 at the J.B. Hunt headquarters in Lowell and Saturday morning from 9 until noon at the Amazium in Bentonville. Arkansas's jobless rate now at a record low point, 3.1 percent, but the latest report for December 2021 shows fewer Arkansans working than in December 2020. The numbers from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics indicates there are about 1,600 fewer employed state residents year to year. The comparison for December 2021 to December 2020 also shows 26,000 fewer Arkansans eligible to work. The city of Bella Vista is reaching out to residents for input about how to spend nearly $6 million in American Rescue Plan funds. The Bella Vista city staff has outlined a plan for the money using guidelines from the Federal Department of the Treasury. And the city is seeking input on that plan that includes employee bonuses for essential non-exempt employees, improvements for broadband, land purchase for a future fire station, and other items. A comment period is open until February 5th. The proposed plan and links for comment can be found at bellavistaar.gov. And the Arkansas Razorback men's basketball winning streak now five. Last night, the Razorbacks defeated Mississippi and Oxford. Next, a non-conference game against West Virginia on Saturday. This is Ozarks at Large. Northwest Arkansas Community College is announcing a new scholarship for trucking students applying to get their commercial delivery license, also known as a CDL, and it's sponsored by the trucking pioneer, Will Shaw. The decision follows NWAC's expansion into the truck driving program last September in response to a strained supply chain system and driver shortages. Recently, Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with NWAC's Liz Anderson and Eve Aldridge. They say the Will Shaw Scholarship will push students to pursue their certification and a career in the trucking industry. For the state of Arkansas alone, um, the projected growth is even higher at like a 7% plus over the next decade. So uh, you can see this huge need in our community. And this scholarship will enable so many uh, folks to be able to either return to this field or um, enter this field that is so needed uh, by so many employers here in this region and beyond. So um, the Shaw family, as you know, um, they have deep roots and a history with the trucking industry. And so this really resonates with them as donors um, to be able to establish this for NWAC students. Do you think this scholarship is going to perhaps attract a different demographic than the typical applicant for a CDL trucking license? maybe younger applicants. Rachel, I'm happy to speak to that. I actually believe it will, uh, particularly for those who have been considering possibly career changes in the last year or two with the pandemic happening, uh, those who have been identifying ways to just uh, either reskill, look at uh, additional endorsements, 
where they might have only been passenger endorsed previously, they're looking at ways to now um, increase their worth or value, if you will, in the field. But especially with the demographics that I've already been able to have communications with students or prospective students in the last two weeks, <laughs> since the announcement, really the last week, I do believe it's going to make a, a huge difference in the demographics for those who are interested. I've had uh, several women, I've had men, I've had uh, individuals that are recently graduated from high school and those that are mid-career, if you want to consider that, uh, age group, mid-career, who are who said, I've been thinking about this for some time now, but primarily just as we know in any education endeavor, the goal to achieving that dream uh, or the goals that are needed for achieving those dreams sometimes are hampered by the financial component. So when you get into access and barriers, uh, announcements of scholarships, any financial assistance that we can provide those uh, prospective students is a huge win for them because that's ultimately who we need to help ensure that they're able to get out in the workforce. Liz, you touched on this slightly, but what does this scholarship and also consequently NWAC's recent expansion into the CDL program signify for students, especially in a time where essential workers like truck drivers are needed in the midst of supply chain chaos and staffing shortages? How does this scholarship fit into that importance? Yeah, I think uh, the, the thing that you'll see with Northwest Arkansas Community College is, um, you know, our president always says community is in our middle name and we are responding to our community. And um, that's something that we're really proud of, that we're nimble, that we're able to respond to the growing needs uh, in our area. So, you, you know, you hear about the nursing um, shortage, you, you uh, and this is kind of in the same vein and that there is a shortage in CDL truck drivers. And so what you're seeing is um, that the community college is responding to that, listening to the area employers, and this program is in, in direct response to that. And as Eve indicated, you know, we want to make it as affordable as possible for students to pursue their dreams and their aspirations. And so uh, while we are, I think, very affordable, um, there are still um, barriers and limitations. And so um, scholarships are really important to um, help alleviate some of that burden. A lot of our students are non-traditional. They are working full time. They are parents. They, uh, you know, and and gas money and, and groceries, everything is getting more and more expensive. Um, so uh, whatever we can do to help uh, alleviate that and, and support them in, in their career path, uh, that is really what NWAC is all about. And so this CDL program though, uh, is a direct response to what we're hearing from our community. Uh, and so I'm really proud of the fact that we're able to do that and provide this in such a short uh, turnaround time. So I know Eve has been working nonstop uh, 24 seven to make this a reality. And um, we're just so proud of the fact that we're able to also uh, provide the scholarship. I was curious as to what the trucking industry is looking like for prospective students um, in terms of salary, in terms of job requirements, details. Um, what is somebody who is perhaps considering entering this industry, what should they know? The trucking industry, regardless of where you are uh, in the state, they are requiring each of the students to have gone through classroom and uh, skills testing, which we, were off we are offering a program that is approximately 160 hours of dedicated training. Uh, classroom is about 54 hours, uh, literal hands-on learning materials, learning measurements, guides, regulations, uh, anything that you would need to know, hours of service to ensure that they're prepared to uh, not only physically drive, but they know the legal ramifications. They're within the guidelines of any regulations that are either state or federally recognized. And then also, if there are any experiences that, they, that they've had with additional driving, such as we have a lot of rural areas, for example. So if you've driven other types of vehicles, some of that experience can be beneficial. So employers want to know what has been your truck driving experience, period, you know, whether it's been CDL licensed or not. Uh, salaries generally starting about $45,000. Uh, it depends on the actual specific industry. So whether it be a local, what we call uh, short haul delivery that's uh, within this area, and then actual traveling outside of the state between different state lines, that can uh, increase the salary. Uh, some of those up to 
upwards $150,000 a year. Um, and then, I mean, it doesn't take very long. And one of the uh, largest employers in the U.S. just recently announced this weekend that they've increased their starting pay for their drivers approximately 33%. And so, whereas a $45,000 year job is now coming in at an entry level of $70,000 uh, immediately. So, I don't know if I don't see you next week. It's because I'm getting my CDL so I can start driving. No, just kidding. <laughs> but but, the, but the, the goal is for uh, employers want uh, well-prepared, well-trained uh, individuals who are ready to commit to whether short haul or long-term driving uh, that can comply with federal regulations, that can comply with hours of service for driving time, and that are uh, ready to do business with their customers from a customer brand perspective in which they're interacting with that company's customer uh, in order to ensure there is a positive experience. That's what they're looking for. And that's our aim and our goal in our classrooms to not just be the technical, but be the safety base customer perception and experience brand awareness happening throughout the entire experience. I just wanted to just say a, a one more thing, a, a thank you to the Shaw family for establishing this incredible endowed scholarship and some loving memory of Willis Shaw. He's He was a pioneer in the industry and a, just a, a huge, uh, just amazing supporter of so many community programs here locally and um, I just I just know that the Shaw family really recognizes the importance of this program. They you know believe that truck drivers are the backbone of of this nation, and they understand that this shortage right now um, can be helped with the scholarship and, and getting more students into this field. So, um, just a huge thank you to them for yes. uh, you know seeing that uh, need uh, and meeting that need, and and just their continued support in Northwest Arkansas. Wonderful. Well, Liz Anderson, Eve Aldridge, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with Northwest Arkansas Community College's Liz Anderson and Eve Aldridge over Zoom Monday. Liz Anderson is the Executive Director of Advancement. Eve Aldridge is a Director of Training and Community Development. You can find more information about the program at nwac.edu. This is Ozarks at Large. Education faces numerous challenges moving forward. The state of Arkansas is predicting a severe teaching shortage in the future, spurred by burnout from the pandemic and from teachers who are retiring. Some schools are already reporting problems finding substitute teachers. So there is a demand to fill those open teaching jobs that are coming. Arkansas State University in Jonesboro is recruiting and training teachers. And Jonathan Reeves, with our partner station KASU in Jonesboro, recently discussed some of the challenges facing education with Arkansas State University Assistant Professor of Elementary Education, Dr. Nicole Covey. Prior to COVID, um, we were ex experiencing a shortage of, of teachers for public schools. Um, COVID has done nothing but make that even more uh, prevalent, um, makes it even more difficult for us to get qualified, highly effective teachers in classrooms for our public school students. Um, most schools at this point can't even find substitutes for when their teachers are out sick or out with their own families. So, yes, teaching has become harder, um, but not impossible. So our job is um, to recruit and retain um, college students who want to be teachers, um, who can be highly effective teachers, and then put those out to our schools. Um, over the next couple of years, it, it started with COVID. Um, but it is continuing. We have large amounts of teachers retiring um, over the next two to three years in the state. Larger retirement groups than actually what colleges are putting out um, as licensed qualified educators. So we want to put a focus on, on drawing people into the teaching profession. Um, a lot of professions are really hard right now. We hear about healthcare. I can't imagine what healthcare what nurses and doctors and everyone at a hospital is having to deal with during the pandemic. Um, and, and we're going through some of that as well, just caring for our students and trying to keep them safe and healthy. Um, but it's a rewarding profession. And um, I think it rewards in ways that others do not. Um, and I think um, 
I think the teacher candidates we're pulling in are going to make just absolutely fantastic, amazing teachers for our kiddos. And we just want to have more of that, right? We just want to have, have be able to put out as many teachers as we can. And one thing I wanted to ask about is where are the teachers needed in, in Arkansas? I know that they're needed everywhere, but are there certain parts of the state where they're needed more than others? Absolutely. Um, the Delta is always in a shortage for um, highly qualified, effective educators. Um, I would say that in our um, more urban settings, central Arkansas um, being one of those, is also um, an area where we lack um, enough teachers for classrooms. And then we usually have a, a deficit, quite a, quite a big deficit down in southeastern Arkansas as well. So for us, primarily the Delta is what we see and hear about the most. And um, there's a lot of programs and activities that we are currently offering and currently working on um, to offer in the future to try to help um, get qualified educators who want to work in those specific schools and stay in those areas so that they can, number one, get highly qualified educators, but number two, grow their own people who want to stay and are invested in their community. Um, that's the kind of teachers we want in our, our community schools. Dr. Covey, I wanted to ask you about diverse candidates. Uh, and, and I know that obviously going into the Delta and going into those schools, it's important to attract diverse candidates. How does that go by way of trying to attract people uh, who can go into schools that look just like the students that are uh, going to those schools? Yeah. Wow. That's, that is a huge issue um, that we talk about and we deal with every semester that even for our local schools, even for our school districts, Jonesboro, Nettleton, um, Brooklyn, Valley View, um, even our closest districts, Mark Tree, Truman, all of them, we are not putting out teachers to teach in those rooms that look like the majority of the students in those rooms. And that's always a challenge. Um, we are making efforts in high schools through programs like Teacher Cadets, um, Educators Rising, um, Teacher Corps, trying to get people interested in becoming teachers while they're in high school, showing them um, what that profession has to offer and how badly teachers of diversity are needed in our classrooms, even in this area, even five minutes down the road from our college. And not only do we want more ethnic diversity, so we need more black teachers, we need more Hispanic teachers, we need more Spanish speaking teachers, regardless. We also need men. We also need men who can go into those classrooms where there are half of them are boys and they need role models and they need people to look up to. And they, you know, it's just a fact. Men are going to teach differently than we all teach, all of us women. So we want to put out a very diverse um, teacher pool. And so we're trying many, many different strategies to get to that in hopes of that it, it, it becomes enticing um, to many diverse candidates. And then in turn, that's just going to help our kids in our classrooms learn. Because you never know what, what students are going through when they go to school and when they leave school. So I know more of the positive role models that you're talking about here can help those students as they go through the school day. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we all want to see people that look like us in um, positions of power or positions of responsibility. Um, that's a given regardless of any profession. And kids are not absent from that. They want to see people that look like them, that act like them, that understand things like them. And that just will help all of us regardless. Dr. Nicole Covey is an assistant professor of elementary education at Arkansas State University in Jonesboro. She recently spoke with Jonathan Reeves, who is with our partner station KASU in Jonesboro. Walton Arts Center presents a conversation with Fran Lebowitz, moderated by KUAF's Kyle Cullums, Friday, February 4th. Fran Lebowitz, author, New Yorker, cultural satirist, is known for her humorous social commentary on American life. This conversation between Kyle and Fran is expected to extend beyond the page and into the unknown. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. Still to come on Ozarks at Large this hour, a new edition of Sound Perimeter with Leah Ribe. She takes us musically to Columbia. And in about 10 minutes, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Folick takes us to the headquarters house in Fayetteville. 
Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. We've got plenty of news to get to this week, starting with Bentonville Apparel Company Outdoor Cap. Janelle Harris, formerly the company's chief sales officer, has been promoted to president, effective immediately. She succeeds Jim Hayworth, who is departing to become executive chairman for Springdale-based healthcare testing company, now Diagnostics. Harris joined Outdoor Cap in 2019, and before that spent 14 years working for consumer products supplier Olivet International. Established in 1977, Outdoor Cap has grown to more than 400 employees and has more than 14,000 business customers across multiple channels of distribution in the retail, team, and promotional products markets. You can read more about the leadership change at Outdoor Cap at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender. State Senator Jonathan Dismang of Searcy is one of the leading Republicans in the Arkansas legislature as co-chair of the Joint Budget Committee. In a recent interview with Roby Brock, Senator Dismang discussed new budget hearings and the changing faces coming to the Arkansas legislature. Before we get to budget, I want to talk about some of the changing faces of the state legislature. Uh, we've seen some very high-profile retirement announcements in the last couple of weeks. Senators right. Keith Ingram, Senators um, Senator Trent Garner, Representative Joe Jett, whom you've worked with a lot on right. tax policy. I'm going to ask you this question from a child psychologist perspective, okay? Okay. Do these changes make you happy, sad, mad, or scared? <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I could answer any of the above on those. You know, I mean, there's a, you know, a lot of great friendships with folks that are leaving. You know, Representative Jed and I have worked really well over the years on uh, tax cut packages and tax policy. And uh, Senator Ingram, you know, has just been a, a really good voice for his district and really for the state uh, in the Senate. And, and of course, we've got a few others with uh, Rep or Senator Garner and. And others that have decided that you know they're 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 ready to to wrap up their you know their part this part of their public service anyway, um, you know so you know everybody's up for re-election this time um, and you know I think we'll see a and continue to probably see some changes uh, in in how it plays out and I think the makeup uh, may be quite different than what we have right now. All right, the governor has proposed uh, his budget. You guys started budget hearings this week to look over some of that. It, uh, the governor's asked for increases in funding to public schools, uh, services for the developmentally disabled, state right. trooper uh, pay. Those are some of the highlights of it. Do you see anything problematic with the governor's proposed uh, budget? Is there anything that you can immediately say, I would like to see something different on this? No, I mean, I think as far as what's been proposed uh, you know, so far, I think most members are going to be agreeable to those changes and like to see those changes. Um, you know, adequacy or the increase in education is something that's actually driven by, uh, you know, the legislature. Uh, so, again, I think that's that's, you know, already something that's been worked through in regards to the state police increase. 
I think it's something the members would like to see. However, there's some discussion about how is that going to work with uh, probably needed changes on the municipal level and on the county level uh, for those same type of law enforcement folks. Uh, so we'll see how that discussion plays itself out a little bit more. We're still waiting on the uh, specifics of what that plan is going to look like uh, for the state police. And then lastly, uh, that DD wait list, um, you know, the Medicaid increase is something that's been pushed by, you know, both parties. That's a bipartisan uh, issue. And I think that one is going to be received, especially since they're absorbing most of that cost inside their current expenditure levels. So the overall uh, budget calls for about a 3.3% increase in spending over the previous uh, year's budget. Um, I guess I just kind of want you to explain or justify that increase in this current political environment. We are going to see uh, conservative versus ultra conservative in GOP primaries as a Republican who has advocated for smaller government yourself. Uh, right. How do you justify a 3.3% increase in spending? Is it is it easy to explain? I think the biggest part of that increase is being driven by the legislature through the, the proposed changes in adequacy. Uh, you know, on a personal level, I want to make sure that we kind of take a deeper dive into the budget and see if we can tamp back that 3.3% growth. I think we're going to be able to do that uh, in, in trying to identify different lot items. I think that could be adjusted so that we don't have that uh, that greater growth. At the same time, you have to be realistic about what's happening in the economy. Uh, the fact that inflation is is fairly rampant right now, um, and that not only affects the private sector but the public sector as well. Um, and, and you know, we need to make sure we're well below what that uh, inflation uh, growth is. I think that we are from everything that I'm seeing so far. Uh, but again, I think there's still some room uh, to tamp down in some particular areas and help absorb those. Uh, increased cost um, in other places. Anything specific that you can mention right now? Uh, One of the discussions is around the performance fund, which that has to do with uh, salary increases. Uh, We have some sizable fund balances there right now. Uh, There's some reasons for that. There's an additional pay period this year and some other items. Uh, But that's one thing that I think members have talked about. Um, In addition to that, I think you'll see uh, really just some discussion discussion on DHS and and making sure that, uh, you know, again, I think there's some changes and possible changes that will be made in discussions we have with the governor. All right, turning to other news headlines this week, Springdale-based online grocery startup EasyBins has completed a $2 million late-stage seed round, which included an investment from Springdale fintech startup Teslar and its CEO, Joe Earhart. EasyBins allows online shoppers to buy groceries from multiple stores, and a driver delivers them in a temperature-controlled bin. Bentonville holding company Runway Group has appointed Brenda Anderson to the newly created position of Chief Strategy Officer. For the past three years, Anderson had been Director of Real Estate Development for Blue Crane. That is Runway Group's real estate acquisition and development arm. Runway Group is led by brothers Tom and Stuart Walton and makes investments in Northwest Arkansas in real estate, hospitality, outdoor initiatives, and aviation. And Dr. Scott Cooper is the new president of Mercy Clinic Northwest Arkansas, which includes more than 200 integrated multi-specialty physicians at 22 clinic locations throughout the region. He replaces Dr. Steve Goss, who retired in December after 18 years in that position. You can find all of those stories and more at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. Happy Thursday. A remarkably preserved Civil War-era estate in Fayetteville's historic district serves as headquarters for the Washington County Historical Society. Time for a field trip. And as our guide, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich. Tucked into Fayetteville's Washington Willow Historic District is a place called Headquarters House on East Dixon Street. The home was originally built in 1853 by Jonas March Tabitz and his wife Matilda. He was a prominent lawyer 
judge, and politician who abhorred slavery. When the Civil War erupted, Tebbets invited Union organizers to headquarter in his home. In 1862, the house was seized by Confederates. However, Jonas Tebbets was imprisoned, condemned to death, but through a series of fortunate circumstances, freed. He and his family eventually fled Arkansas. As for the Tebbets family home, it somehow survived the Civil War. And during the Battle of Fayetteville, it it took a, a muzzle ball in the front door, which has been placed into the parlor since it has a hole in it now. Lee Ann Kirby Wiedekers, president of the Washington County Historical Society, which purchased Headquarters House in 1967. At the time when the Tebbets lived here, they had four bedrooms, a parlor, the kitchen, a dining room, um, and now we have more public spaces designated in the house, and it's furnished with period pieces, some of which are actually gifts from the Tebbets family. The house is filled with relics and antiques. And this room has, has a desk in it because it was used by Gregory Peck during the filming of The Blue and the Gray. The Blue and the Gray was a popular 1980s Civil War television series filmed entirely in Arkansas. We walk through past historic portrait paintings into the dining hall. The headquarters house does have an endowment. People have uh, generously given to the Washington County Historical Society through their wills and trusts, and we also have other donations. But through the years, different people have given money, and the head and the historical society has been very frugal and conservative and good about making that endowment grow. The museum is not a research center, but rather an interpretive site for the public to tour. On Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, from 1 to 4, the house is open for tours. And then you could also schedule group tours to come to the house. Uh, We've had a history of having um, tour groups come, buses of 40 to 45 people who will come and, and see the house and hear the story of the house, as well as school children. Pandemic permitting, the Society hosts a Civil War Battle of Fayetteville Memorial, Statehood Day, an annual October meeting, a winter holiday open house, and the most popular, a summer ice cream social hosted on the front lawn. The town sort of comes together. The mayor is always here. It makes makes his cameo appearance. If you have the desire to see any of your friends and neighbors, they'll probably be here. So it's it's a real... um, It's a real town event. Visitors to Headquarters House are encouraged to wander the grounds, restored by Washington County Master Gardeners. Who have brought it back to what it was. Heirloom plant research is based in part on historical records kept by Judge Tebbets' daughter, Marion Tebbets, rendered, as it turns out, by Lee Ann Wiedeker when she was a landscape architecture student at the University of Arkansas. I had a professor who asked me to be his research assistant who did the drawing that we actually still use today that shows the garden in at the time when the Tebbets family lived in the garden. That now historic drawing is on display in the House Museum, and the gardens, depending on the season, yield lush spring hyacinths, jonquil, summer hollyhocks, roses and phlox, and lots of autumnal color. We have some historic trees. There's a juniper in the in the front lawn, um, a cypress that is, we believe, was here at the time the Tebbets family lived here. We've also retained some maple trees. At one point in time, Judge Tebbets planted maples in the front front lawn. The Washington County Historical Society also operates a bookstore. On the shelves are copies of It's All Done Gone, published several years ago by the University of Arkansas Press, author Patsy Watkins, U of A Emeritus Associate Professor of Journalism, gleans a compelling trove of historic photographs of Arkansas sharecroppers and tenant farmers taken during the Great Depression in her book. Patsy Watkins is also now editor of the Quarterly Flashback, published by the Washington County Historical Society. The journal was first edited by Society founder Walter Lemke, credited with establishing the U of A Department of Journalism in 1928. Walter Lemke uh, was the first editor, and you know he edited this thing by himself 
for something like 17 years, I think. Uh, when he started it, it was a full-size publication, an eight and a half by 11, and he mimeographed it. And he, actually, he mimeographed that thing for the full time that he was editor. And he, um, he would produce like six copies a year. It was primarily uh, genealogical information, family information, uh, listings of cemeteries, um, and, uh, and anecdotes, anecdotal information, little stories uh, that people would tell him, and, and also trips around the, the county. The Flashback Journal counts a long list of editors, Watkins says, who were professional journalists or historians. Ellen Compton Shipley, uh, Tim Nutt, who was the head of special collections at the university, uh, and is now with UAMS, historical research area. Charlie Allison, who is still with the university uh, and has published several books about history of Fayetteville and, and of the university. Um, people who've done quite a lot of writing themselves. Libraries from across the U.S. subscribe to the journal to stock reference sections for patrons. But about the 70s, mid-70s or so, it shifted into um, having articles that were researched, okay? And then shifted again to not just research, but having sourced materials with, with endnotes. Uh, so it has made this move toward a more, I guess I call it a semi-scholarly sort of publication because we're, it's not peer-reviewed, but it, the articles are footnoted or endnoted um, and, you know, the, resort, the sourcing is clear. Journal writers cover Washington County politics, agriculture, health, military history, education, biographies, geography, government, as well as indigenous, African-American, Asian, and Hispanic histories. I would welcome uh, story ideas from people who know much more about this area than I do and have stories to tell. Uh, and yes, they, they are more than welcome to contact me um, and uh, send me an email or contact me through the Historical Society, our headquarters house. The nonprofit Washington County Historical Society also publishes a current events newsletter titled Flash Forward, distributed to over 450 members. New members are always welcome. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Several area groups are being recognized for work that will be done outdoors by the Ozark Society Foundation. The foundation recently announced recipients of the 2022 Youth Engagement Grants. The Clarksville High School FFA stream team will use $2,000 to help preserve Spot Creek. The Ozark Natural Science Center in Huntsville will use $3,000 to serve up to 800 students as part of a project to make trails more accessible for people with limited mobility. The NWA Forest School is being awarded more than $1,100 to provide lessons for students in grades K through 5 to learn about habitat and gardening. And 30 students from Fayetteville High School are honored with $1,500 for invasive species removal in three public areas. In all, the Ozark Society Foundation awarded nearly $15,000 in grants to eight groups across the state. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Momentary in Bentonville, a contemporary art space featuring today's visual, performing, and culinary arts with free admission, presents In Some Form or Fashion, a new free exhibition exploring the intersection of art and fashion through the work of six contemporary artists. Open now through March 27th. More information available at themomentary.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Dr. Karee Batten, who is director of the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas and is host of the podcast Undisciplined that's co-produced through KUAF and Ozarks at Large, will present a series, along with KUAF, of four live podcast recordings in front of audiences in celebration of Black History Month. Each of these sessions will include panelists from across northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas River Valley. Each will focus on one topic. We're going to provide a platform for the celebration of African-American successes and a place for honest discussion about the obstacles still in front of African-Americans in the fight for social justice, business, religion, the media, politics, and much more. We'll have details about each of the four live podcast recordings coming up soon, so stay tuned.
told me I'd grow a glass And just like he said He said that all my hair would disappear Now look at my hair This is Leo Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. I am so happy to be here with you again. I took some time to rest and regroup and am ready to start this new Sound Perimeter year with lots of energy, enthusiasm and great music. We open Sound Perimeter today with Encanto's hit, We Don't Talk About Bruno a song written by American singer-songwriter Lin-Manuel Miranda. After returning from the holidays, which I spent with my family in Colombia, my country, I watched the movie Encanto, knowing that it had a storyline that had some intersections with my own. First, I want to say that I am too totally in love with this song, The rhythms, a perfect combination of hip-hop, guajira, pop and dance, the catchiness of Broadway, and the line, we don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. He told me that the life of my dreams would be promised and someday be mine. He told me that my power would grow like the grapes that thrive on the vine. Oye, Mariano's on his way. He told me that the man of my dreams would be just out of reach. He told to another. It's like I hear him. Hey, sis. I want not a sound out of you. I can hear him now. That was an excerpt from We Don't Talk About Bruno, a song written by American singer-songwriter Lin-Manuel Miranda and performed by a stellar group of singers, including Colombian musicians Carolina Gaitán and Mauro Castillo for the movie Encanto. This song invites you to dance, which is what we do in Colombia for every gathering and celebration. Encanto reminded me of family reunions and also of mi abuela, who, like Alma Madrigal, had to raise her children by herself as a widow, mine raised my mom and her eight siblings, and kept it all together and set some very high standards for the rest of us. We don't talk about Bruno, it's very catchy, but it won't be fair if I don't talk about Dos Oruguitas, one of the other Lin Manuel Miranda songs from this movie. Dos Oruguitas, translated to English as Two Little Caterpillars, is described by Lin-Manuel Miranda as a Colombian folk song inspired by Brazilian Antonio Carlos Jovim and Spanish Juan Manuel Serrat. This song is about two caterpillars falling in love and having to let each other go, which is a metaphor for what has happened in the movie with the Madrigal's family. To me, this is also a metaphor for the conflict in my country and the experiences my generation grew up with, Violence, internal conflict between armed forces, guerrillas, paramilitaries, and drug wars. And the transformation of all of those circumstances into strength, resilience, and eventually happiness and celebration, and the creation of a better future. Dos oruguitas enamoradas Pasan las noches y madrugadas Llenas de hambre Siguen andando y navegando un mundo que cambia y sigue cambiando. 
Dos oruguitas paran el viento Mientras se abrazan con sentimiento Siguen creciendo, no saben cuándo Buscan algún rincón El tiempo sigue cambiando Inseparables son El tiempo sigue cambiando Ay, oruguitas, no se aguanten más Hay que crecer aparte y volver Hacia adelante seguirás Vienen milagros, vienen crisálidas Hay que partir y construir su propio futuro Dos oruguitas desorientadas En dos capullos bien abrigadas Con sueños nuevos ya solo falta Hacer lo necesario El mundo sigue cambiando Tumbando sus paredes Ahí viene nuestro milagro Hay mariposas no se aguanten más, hay que crecer aparte y volver, hacia adelante seguirás, ya son milagros, rompiendo crisálidas, hay que volar, hay que encontrar su propio futuro, hay mariposas, no se aguanten más, hay que crecer aparte y volver, hacia adelante seguirás, ya son milagros, rompiendo crisálidas, hay que volar, hay que encontrar su propio futuro. The Voice Colombian Marta Gómez cover of Encantos song Dos Oruguitas. Marta is one of the most important singers and songwriters in the Latin American music scene today, combining depth of musical skills with poetic lyrics that represent histories and realities of our people. The original version in the movie is beautiful as well and sang by the also Colombian Sebastián Yatra. I love my country and long for so many things every day. Arepas, empanadas, buñuelos, mariposas amarillas, family rituals, dancing, chocolate con queso. And I hope this music selection from today has offered an annotated way and an entry point to some of our roots and histories. This is Lia Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a segment I write and host, regularly produced and supported by Timothy Dennis, Kyle Callums, and Lee Wood. Sound Perimeter is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. We hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, we'll check in with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics for a review of the week's news. And Courtney Lanning will deliver a review of yet another Ice Age movie, plus the UCI Cyclocross World Championships getting underway in Fayetteville. That and much more. Ozarks, tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF and on your schedule with the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. Happy to be joined by Diana Dominguez, Multicultural Community Liaison, with the Fayetteville Public Library. Diana, nice to talk to you for the first time. Thank you so much for extending an opportunity for us to talk about the GED classes that we're offering at the Fayetteville Public Library. That's right. It's a 24-week Spanish-taught prep course for general education development, or GED. Uh, actually, let's back up a little bit. Uh, multicultural community liaison for a public library has got to be uh, something, I bet there's something new every day that you come across, <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. So this position actually was initiated in October 20. 
uh, under the Department of Community Engagement. And so I work a little bit with all of the departments of adult and our youth services department to continue to create programs that target or engage Spanish-speaking as well as Marshallese communities in in the area. Uh, These classes take place each Friday. That's 10 a.m. through June 17th. Um, Describe this program and how it came about. We have partnered with Amy Villanueva of Crowder College. She will actually be leading the classes, and they will be led completely in Spanish. All the materials are provided, and I I saw on y'all's press release uh, that even those who are eligible can receive a tablet to complete these studies. Yes, absolutely. So through our partnership with Crowder, specifically with Amy, there is an opportunity for eligible participants to, aside from receiving free study prep materials, to also receive a tablet to be able to help supplement their studies. Our hope is that through partnering with Crowder College that this provides an opportunity uh, to those that might not have had access to educational opportunities for a variety of reasons. And so we want to be able to provide that opportunity here at the Vieva Public Library. Uh, We really see it as an opportunity to be able to to also just orient them and help to bring some recognition to the Fayetteville Public Library, specifically to our Spanish-speaking population, um, and really see continue to see our library as, as a center for community resources. Diana Dominguez, Multicultural Community Liaison with the Fayetteville Public Library. Thanks for letting us know about this. I hope we can uh, pack out the class. Thank you so much, Pete. To register for this free GED class, you'll need to call Amy Villanueva. That's 479-368-4655, 368-4655. Or you can find more about the program at the Fayetteville Public Library website, fayylib.org. The Community Spotlight and KUAF Local Matters. There are several area establishments included in the finalists for the Arkansas Food Hall of Fame's Class of 2022. Herman's Rib House in Fayetteville and Neal's Cafe in Springdale are both in the running for the Arkansas Food Hall of Fame's main category. Rob Nelson from Tusk and Trotter in Bentonville is a finalist for Proprietor of the Year. And two former restaurants, Coy's Steakhouse, once in Fayetteville, and James at the Mill, once in Johnson, are both nominated in the Gone But Not Forgotten category. Initial nominees were made by the public and a panel of chefs, historians, food authors, and food lovers will make the final selections for the Class of 22. The Arkansas Food Hall of Fame is sponsored by Arkansas Heritage. Winners will be announced soon, February 7th. And by the way, we already know the 2022 Arkansas Food of the Year, it's chicken. Walton Arts Center presents Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom, a new musical that tells the true story of Linda Blackman Lowry, the youngest person to walk from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama during the Voting Rights March in 1965. This virtual-only screening runs February 3rd through the 16th. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org. This is KUAF 91.3. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Prairie Creek. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas and Ozarks at Large, a production of KUAF. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors this Thursday included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Jacqueline Froelich, Leah Uribe, and Jonathan Reeves from our partner station KASU in Jonesboro. The Community Spotlight is produced by Pete Hartman inside the Nancy Blair Operations Studio. You can hear brand new editions of the Community Spotlight every weekday morning at 6.30 and 8.30 inside Morning Edition on KUAF. Also, every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30, news from around the state and around the region with Daniel Carruth. The Northwest Arkansas Business Journal with Paul Gatling is produced by Stephanie Brock. It is part of our continuing partnership with Talk Business and Politics. Our theme, titled First to Raw, is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We'll be back with you tomorrow, noon and 7, for a brand new Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. You can always listen to us if you miss us by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio inside the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellum. Stay warm, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon.